Well, good morning. I'm Claire, and I serve as the associate pastor here at the Brookside campus, and I'm a part of a two-year pastoral fellowship that we have. And my husband, Adam, and I have been here since the beginning, which I was reminiscing with one of you before the service, that that was about a year and a half ago. It's hard to believe it. And it has been such a privilege to serve here and to get to know many of you. And like many of you, I enjoy watching movies. In this past week, I watched the Oscars' best picture of the year. I don't know if you've seen it. Twelve Years a Slave. And it was not an enjoyable experience. I could not take pleasure in watching the injustice and suffering. I had to look away in many scenes. I couldn't bear it. I watched it once, and I don't want to watch it again. And this is not a movie for everyone, certainly not for children. But it is a powerful movie, and it's based off a true story the life of Solomon Northup. Solomon is a free black man from the north who was a husband, a father, and a musician. And he was kidnapped and sold into slavery in 1841. His story gives us a glimpse of the dehumanizing treatment of those enslaved. Whippings, lynchings, rapings, As I watched the movie, I longed for justice, so much so that I spoke my frustration out loud to my husband sitting next to me. Yes, I am one of those people that talks in movies. (laughs) When we see wrong, we cry out for judgment. We long for justice, for wrongs to be righted, don't we? We want the guilty to be judged for their wrong. But surely, we're not guilty, or are we? How do we know which side we're on, right or wrong, guilty or innocent? The author of Hebrews tells us we are all on the wrong side of judgment, God's judgment. We are guilty, and someone has to pay for our wrong. But the good news of Christianity is that someone does not have to be us. It doesn't have to be you or me. The someone is Jesus Christ who pays. And Jesus' payment for us is bloody. We will ask and answer three questions as we look at Hebrews 9. Why is judgment necessary? What's with all the blood And why is Jesus' blood better? Before we dive in, let's pray. Lord, we need your Holy Spirit to help us understand this text. Lord, to help us understand who you are and we are and how we respond to this. Lord, we ask that you would open our eyes Lord, that we would have ears to hear and hearts that are receptive to what you would have us say this morning. 
Lord, I ask that you would speak to me, you would speak to all of us here who are gathered. In Christ's name, amen. So first, why is judgment necessary? Someone has to pay for our wrong. But why? Why is judgment necessary? The author of Hebrews reminds us of the certainty of judgment. Look at verse 27 that was just read. It is appointed for a man to die once, and after that, judgment. Everyone has to die and then face the consequences. People have joked that there are two things for certain in life. Death and taxes. And as we approach tax season, um, April, we're probably all really aware of taxes. And according to this text, there are three things for certain in life. Taxes, death, and judgment. Judgment is necessary. Why? Judgment gives life meaning. If everything was relative, if there was no power above us by whom we are judged, then life does not have meaning. Let me say it a different way. If nothing was judged wrong, then nothing would be judged right, and life would be meaningless. But if life has meaning, then we have guilt for what we have done wrong. C.S. Lewis, a Christian author, said Christianity only begins to make sense once you understand judgment. Christianity does not make sense to you if you don't know you have done wrong and you do not feel you need God's forgiveness. Listen to what C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind that law and that you have broken the law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. The moral law is God's law and it's summed up in one commandment, the great commandment to love God, and to love others perfectly. But none of us live up to this standard. I try not to break God's law, but I break it every single day by what I have done and by what I have failed to do. We have all broken the moral law, and we have put ourselves wrong with the all-powerful God we all are guilty. But rather than taking ownership, it can be easier to point the finger, to act as judge rather than be judged. We use, I use comparison to try to remove my guilt for the ways I have wronged others in God. Maybe you can relate. I say something like, I'm not that bad. Look at what they did. And we use, I use blame shifting to point out to others their guilt and to cover up my guilt. Our attempts to cover up our guilt doesn't work though. Why? It doesn't make right the wrongs we have done. It does not bring about justice. It does not make us right with God 
and with one another. We try to deflect our guilt by not taking responsibility for our wrong. And we try to cover it up by trying to forget our wrong. We're going to watch a clip from 12 Years a Slave. As Armsby, a former slave master, explains how he managed his guilt. For Armsby, alcohol was what he drowned his guilt in. He drank too much to be aware. We can turn to anything to help us forget our guilt. Food, shopping, entertainment, other people, work, constant activity. But it doesn't work. Deep down in our hearts, we know our wrongs. What Arsby said is true. No person of conscience can be at peace with the wrongs they have committed. So what is conscious? In the Bible, conscious means how fit we are for the presence of someone. Our conscious tells us how fit we are for the presence of God and others. Our conscience is our moral awareness of good and evil, right and wrong. Conscious comes up repeatedly in Hebrews. We see it in chapter 9 that was just read in verses 9 and 14. And if we read on, we'll see it in chapter 10. Our conscience is shaped by guilt and shame. We feel guilt when we have done something bad, but shame is different from guilt. Guilt is about what we have done, and shame is about who we are. Shame tells us, you are bad. Something is wrong with you. On our own, we cannot seem to get rid of guilt and shame. Nothing seems to work, really work. Our conscience is not at rest, so we scramble. We cover up. We hide. This is what humankind has done since the beginning, back in the garden, In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve chose to be like God rather than listen to God. They broke God's law, and they hid themselves from God. They did not feel fit for God's eyesight or presence. And we do the same. When we fall short, we believe we cannot survive close examination. We hide from God and from one another. We think to ourselves, if they only knew what I am like, what I have done, then they would reject me. If God only knew my thoughts, intents, motives, actions, then he would reject me. When our conscience has no peace, it's because we know something is not right in us. But there is a way we, beca- we can become right with God. But this is where it gets really bloody. The word blood is used 11 times in our passage this morning in verses 11 through 14. So what is with all the blood? God requiring blood seems primitive, disgusting, gruesome. Our world is already filled with violence. Why do we need more violence? Why do we need more blood? 
But we impose our understanding on blood. And we need to step back and understand the story that blood tells us. Blood tells a story of how bad things are. Blood represents brokenness, guilt, and shame. And stain, excuse me. When we see blood, we know something is broken. Blood is a sign that something is wounded and needs attention. And if you watched the men's basketball game between Iowa State and KU on Friday night, you saw this. An Iowa State player tried to block a KU player for making a basket, and he got elbowed in the head, and blood was pouring out. They had to stop the game. Blood tells us that something is wounded and needs our attention. When someone is guilty, we say blood is on their hands and blood stains. No matter what we try to do to wash it off ourselves, blood is still on our hands. The stain of guilt remains. We can't wash it off. Washing ourselves with soap doesn't work to cleanse our conscience. So how do we become clean? How can the stain of our guilt be removed? More blood. Look at verse 22. Under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. During the time of Moses, God laid out for his people how they were to approach him, and it included blood. Sacrificial blood was required to purify God's people in place of worship because of their sin, because they had wronged God. Under the old covenant, God's people could not approach God without the blood of animals. Why? Because of God's holiness. We sang about that this morning. God is unique. He is set apart. He can do no wrong. He is morally pure. God cannot ignore how we have broken his moral law. He cannot just shrug it off. And we don't want him to. We want justice. We want and need the one true God to care about justice, truth, and law. And he does. The Israelites' problem and our problem is that we break God's law. We wrong God, and we cannot approach God without blood. Sin requires sacrifice. The cost of wronging God, rebelling against God and his ways, is blood. The point of the sacrificial system God established in the Old Covenant was to communicate how costly and horrible sin is before him. The point was not to offer a sacrifice each time you broke the law. The point was to understand the weight of rebellion and to turn away from sin, turn towards God, and live differently. Our sin is costly. Blood reminds us of the cost of our rebellion. Someone or something has to pay for our blood, 
for our sins, and the cost is death. Verse 22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness is always costly. Dietrich Bonhoeffer is a Christian who was a martyr. He passed away in World War II in Germany. And he knew suffering and forgiveness. And he said this, all forgiveness is suffering. If you're in a community group, a small group with others who are a part of our church, you recently read Pastor Tim Keller's explanation of costly forgiveness from his book, The Reason for God. He explains to us that no one just forgives. There is always a cost to forgiveness. For example, if someone hits your car, someone has to pay. The person who hit your car can pay, or you can forgive them of the cost of the accident. But if you do that, if you forgive them of the debt, you pay. If you have been seriously wronged, if a family member or friend has deeply hurt you, if a classmate or coworker has damaged your reputation, if you have been robbed of happiness or an opportunity, then you feel like the person who wronged you owes you. They have a debt to pay. You have a feeling of injustice that doesn't go away when that person approaches you and says, I'm sorry. So you have two options. You can make them pay to suffer for what they have done, or you can pay. You can forgive. You absorb the debt when you forgive, taking the cost of their wrong on yourself instead of taking it out on them. Forgiveness is a form of suffering, and it feels like death. God has the same two options for us. God can make us suffer for our wrong, or he can suffer. The good news is that the person suffering for our wrong is God, not us. God does not ignore or excuse our sin. He bears the full cost of it. He does not demand our blood. He offers his own. Jesus, God in the flesh and human form, absorbs our debt on the cross and his death. Jesus' blood is better than the old covenant sacrifices and any sacrifices that you or I can offer. So why is Jesus' blood better? The problem with the old covenant sacrifices is found in verse 9. Look there. They cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The Old Covenant sacrificial system was not empowered or designed to cleanse the Israelites' conscience any more than good works are empowered or designed to cleanse our own conscience. It was a temporary system, a shadow of what was to come in Jesus Christ and the New Covenant. To understand how Jesus is better, we need to understand the Old Covenant sacrificial system, which is recorded in the Old Testament. The place of worship 
was a tabernacle, and it included dividers to separate God's holy presence from impurity, impure people. And look at this diagram of the tabernacle. The most holy place, which was behind the two veils, was where the Lord would meet with his people. This space was only entered once a year on the Day of Atonement called Yom Kippur. In Leviticus 16, we find God's instructions for the Day of Atonement. The only person allowed to enter the most holy place was the high priest. And he came to offer the blood of goats and bulls as a sacrifice for sin for himself and for all people. Hebrews 9, 11 through 14 tells us how Jesus Christ and the new covenant he established is better than the old at every point. Follow along as I read verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the great and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus Christ is the better high priest and the better sacrifice. Christ, as our representative, our high priest, entered God's presence in heaven once and for all. He who is holy, innocent, and unstained offered himself as a sacrifice. He offered his blood as a sacrifice for our sin and freed us from the enslavement of sin. Christ suffered for our sins on the cross. He paid for our wrong so that we could be right with God. Christ offers us eternal redemption, deliverance from sin's penalty. Christ paid our debt. Through his blood, our sins are forgiven and we are cleansed. Jesus' better blood affects us in many ways. And right standing with God is on the top of the list. But let me mention three more ways Jesus' better blood affects us. His blood removes our shame, frees us to serve God, and gives us hope. Christ's blood removes our shame. Christ's blood purifies our conscience. Our conscience communicates to us who we are and what we are. And our conscience is not at rest when we have shame. I mentioned earlier that when we have shame, we feel like something is wrong with us. Well, the truth of the matter is something is wrong with us. 
Without Christ's blood, we are not fit for God's presence or his eyesight. And this cannot be fixed by us. But we sure try. I know I do. We do things on the outside to try to make us feel good on the inside. We try offering good behavior to God so that he will accept us. We try to deal with the sense that we're not good enough. We hustle. And this hustle is not to the beat of the 70s song, Do the Hustle. This hustle is to the beat of you are not good enough, try harder. I live this way until midway through college, and it is exhausting. The good news is we do not have to live this way. Our conscience cannot be cleaned from the outside. It needs to be cleaned from the inside. Christ accomplished for us what we could not accomplish for ourselves. Christ cleans us from the inside out. Christ's blood purifies our conscience. If you believe that Jesus died because of your sin and paid your debt, then you can stand before God with a clean conscience. You can stand before his presence and eyesight. The blood of Christ washes us clean, not our good deeds. Christ's blood washes our guilty sins away. Jesus makes us whole. A Christian's conscience is at rest because he or she stands in the work of Christ, not their own work. And when we are free from shame, we can draw near to God. The purpose of God removing our shame, which we see in verse 14, is so that we can serve the living God. Christ's blood covers us so that we can approach the living God. His blood renews us so we can worship, serve, and live for God. The new covenant which Christ established on the cross changes us and how we relate to God. Our hearts are changed. The law is written on our hearts. This means we want to obey, please, serve, and worship God. Even though God changes our hearts, we still have not turned to God with our whole hearts. And right now, we're in the season of Lent. Lent is the 40 days, excluding Sundays, leading up to Easter. During Lent, we focus on Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and what that means for us. Lent is a time of preparation. During Lent, we make room in our lives for examination, asking God to reveal our sins, asking God for his forgiveness of the sins that he reveals, and asking God for his strength to turn from sin and to return to him with all our heart. During Lent, we have an opportunity to embrace new rhythms that will help us turn our hearts to God. And during Lent, I encourage each of us to turn from sin and return to God so that we are more free to live for God, to serve him. 
The final word of Hebrews chapter 9 is one of hope. Jesus' blood was not just for the past to cleanse us for our sin. And it's not just for the present to free us to serve the living God. It's also for the future. Jesus' blood gives us hope. We started in Hebrews 9.27 and we'll end there. Follow along in Hebrews 9, 27 through 28. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sins, he already did that on the cross, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Someone has to pay for our wrongs. That someone is Jesus Christ if we will accept his payment on our behalf. Christ will come again. And if you believe he died because of your sin and paid your debt, then you will be eager to greet him. You will not have fear of God's judgment. You will look forward to Christ's second coming. Christ's blood is powerful. And we now have an opportunity to respond and to remember Christ's blood, to consider the cost of our sins, and to thank God for his forgiveness. We do this as we sing about Jesus' blood, which we will soon do, pray, and participate in communion. Communion is for all who are spiritually thirsty. You don't have to be a member of Christ's community to participate in communion. You're welcome to remain in your seat if you rather not participate and pray and reflect. Or you can receive prayer in the back by the sound booth. When you come, gather in groups of four to six, take the bread and dip it in the juice. Then partake of it together as a group. There are four communion stations, two in the front, two in the back, and this one serves gluten-free elements. And we have found that it's easier to come through the side aisles and come through the center aisles, and we know that it's tight and it's okay to bump into one another. And Jesus, at his last meal, he took the bread And after blessing it, he broke it. And he gave it to the disciples and said, This is my body broken for you. Take and eat. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Come to partake in communion and to receive prayer.